Thank you for coming to uh, hear the second talk on uh, the history of the Christian brethren in relation to uh, evangelism. I was converted at the age of 14, and uh, just a couple of weeks after being converted, I felt a real desire to go along to the prayer meeting and, and to the Bible study. So I got down there at 25 past uh, 7 on a Tuesday evening. Nobody was there. And then an elder turned up and said, what are you doing here? And I said, I've, uh, I've come to learn a little bit more about the Bible and to learn a little bit about prayer. He said, well, you better come in then. So I used to go along to that uh, prayer meeting and Bible study every Tuesday evening until I actually left uh, Blackburn and went to train in the field of horticulture. Every month, one Tuesday a month, we had a missionary night. So we had Bible studies for the other Tuesdays and then always a missionary night where we we read mission reports to each other, and it's there that one gains a little bit of confidence to read in public uh, and to discuss things. And every now and then, an elder would say to me, uh, would you just gen up on this missionary society and give us five minutes on Tuesday so we can pray about it? So we did that, and every now and then we had a live missionary, which even as a... <laughs> it used to gall me as a young person, because to be about 12 in this little... Uh, little side room in a brethren assembly, praying and trying to get a big view of the world. Then when a live missionary came, folk came out of the woodwork. You know, there was tea, there was cakes, and, and then people used to pray like there were stalwarts in the assembly, and then we didn't see them for three weeks or four weeks until another missionary came on the scene. Brethrenism primarily is a missionary movement. It didn't start off as that. But when it really found its roots, or shall I say, found its wings, it would be true to say that Plymouth Brethrenism was primarily a missionary movement. And uh, if we take Brethrenism out of the world of mission, there would be a large black hole. A huge black hole. And I want to speak to that this afternoon about the impact of the Plymouth Brethren on, on world mission, and then, God willing, next, uh, next time I speak, we'll look at it in relation to, to ourselves. What is their impact? I want to speak on five areas this afternoon. I'm going to skate through four of them very, very quickly, and then going to spend the rest of the time looking at number five. How do we know they had a heart for mission? Number one, their literature. If you know anything about the literature produced by the Plymouth Brethren over the past 200 years, then it has been incredibly outward-looking. Most denominational literature is very inward-looking, keeping the system going, keeping the organization going. In fact, most denominational papers have now gone to the wall and just appear on, on the website. And uh, just before the Baptist Times went onto the internet, uh, you know, it used to be produced in paper. I'm not being rude, I'm being realistic. I could read it in five minutes. Uh, it was always wise not to read it before you visited your doctor for some blood pressure test. <laughs> and for me, the most, the most spiritually invigorating part of reading the Baptist Times was after I'd read it, I recycled it in the newspaper box, thinking, well, at least I'm doing God's earth good by putting this back into the soil. <laughs> Why? It was all about internal politics and books I would never read being reviewed and all that kind of inward-looking stuff. The majority, and I flicked my way through this in the John Ryland's University Library and also been brought up on this, the majority of brethren literature, I would say, is outward-looking Echoes of Service is a brethren organization that started in Bath, heavily connected with W.E. Vine. We'll come to that in a moment. 
that was there to facilitate missionaries on the field. It wasn't a board. It wasn't there to advise. It wasn't there to raise money. It was just there to facilitate missionaries on the field and to let people know back home what was going on. They started in 1872. In 2017, they are still going. Every month, they produce a glossy little magazine telling you what is going on in the world through their missionaries. Now, any person who's done missionary work overseas has this kind of dilemma. Will they forget me at home? And so I, I see it on a regular basis these days. Missionaries just pop home and say, I'm still here. And it's called fundraising, just raising your awareness. People on the mission field in the Brethren Church did not have to do that. Echoes of service did it for you. That's why so many of them could go out onto the field and, and not come back for years, but still be very remembered in, in, in a prayerful manner. Take from my example a man called John Olley. John Olley, his father sat under C.H. Spurgeon and was a converted man. John, later in life, in, in sort of teenage years, he, he became a Christian. And then he felt a call of God to go out to Africa. And so he finished up in Chad as a brethren missionary. While he was out there, and it's amazing how we just know of one or two missionaries. While he was out there, by the way, he died in 1956, which isn't too long ago. While he was out there, he planted 80 churches. He translated the language, sorry, the New Testament, into two local languages. And he never had a furlough in 37 years. I would say no missionary could survive in the 21st century without coming back to have a furlough because folk would forget you. And furthermore, the nature of the church that sent you out would go through so many splits and divisions <laughs> that, that you would come home. And that's often happened. This is not the church that sent me. In fact, the church that sent me doesn't exist anymore. A new kind of Christianity has come and they've told me, you're no longer on our missionary books. So John Ollie was on the mission field for 37 years as a brethren missionary in Chad. He felt it was time to have a furlough. So he came home. He came home. He'd only been home a couple of days, and he was in the home of friends, 1956, and they were just chatting about the work in Chad and whether he would go back and so on. Uh, and they talked about that, and then they said, let's have a word of prayer before you, you move on. And this was his prayer. Lord, if you've got further work for me to do in Chad, I'm more than willing to carry on, but if my work is finished, I'm ready to come home. And he breathed his last. 37 years. But people like Echoes of Service brought this man constantly before the praying heart of the Brethren Church saying, he's one of ours, let's support him and let's pray for him. And so we, we thank God for people like Echoes of Service. Frederick Tatford, he died in 1986, or if any of you actually heard Frederick Tatford preach, he, he, was, he was a prolific writer. I mean, when one looks at what he did in his life, I don't know how he did it. Towards the end of his life, he produced a ten-volume set of books. It's the Operation World. It's kind of the Patrick Johnson of the Brethren World. And in ten books, he divided the world into ten parts. And he wrote a book on each part about the missionary state of that part of the world, the missionary needs, and those who were actually out there doing the work through the Brethren Church. And uh, I was in a second-hand bookshop in Coimbatore back in October, and I saw nine of the ten volumes for sale for, for £60, and I thought, do I? Do I not? Because it's incomplete. And, and I, 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 
I wanted to say to the man, look, if I put a deposit down, can I just borrow these for the convention I'm going to speak on, and I'll bring them back. And if you can find the tenth, I'll buy them. But, but can, you, can you give me any other denomination in this country that can write ten books as one complete series on world mission? Saying, this is what is needed, and this is what we're doing to address the need. And all this came through Echoes of Service. You may be interested to know the titles of the books. Very interesting. The Restless Middle East. Dawn over Latin America. The Challenge of India. The Muslim World. The Mysteries of the Far East. Light over Dark Continent. Asian Giant Awakes. West European Evangel. Red Glow in Eastern Europe. And the Isles of the Sea. Hmm. Interesting. So how do we know that they were missionary minded? Well, their literature. Secondly, I've already mentioned it, but a little bit more information, echoes of service. The brethren have never had any denominational machinery. You know that machinery needs maintenance. It needs money and it needs people. And it's quite frightening. And when you, when you meet in a, in a church building, it's surprising how much money goes on maintenance just of bricks and mortar. When you rent somewhere, it's slightly different but you have no responsibilities, you're not paying for this and paying for that, you just rent it and walk away. When you are paying for this, that and the other, a lot of your money is swallowed up on just keeping your name afloat. When you're not doing that, when you're not paying pastors, or assistant pastors, or youth workers, or administrators, what do you do with your money? You put it into mission. And that's why the brethren were great missionary-minded people, because they had no denominational machinery to keep going. They just pumped it into mission. And uh, they, they primarily only supported two kinds of people, full-time evangelists and missionaries. So if you were a full-time evangelist, you know, wow, this is serious work. You're like the Apostle Paul. We'll support you. And if you're going overseas, we'll support you as well. Uh, and here's echoes of service saying, we will not advise, but we will facilitate to help that keep, keep flowing. And uh, in 1909, the Brethren denomination had 660 missionaries on the field from this country. 660. In 1918, they had 700. In 1945, 1,000. 1964, 1,168. That's when they peaked saying we just want people to get out there and to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ one of the great driving forces behind this was, was a man called W.E. Vine and if you study the scriptures you must have W.E. Vine and his Greek New Testament words and oh, it's, it's interesting it's, uh, it's great for lay people and to baffle people in the congregation that they think that you're fluent in Greek he was born uh, in 1873 and died in 1949. Just, just as an aside, this has got no spiritual value. He's buried about 15 yards from Arnold Ridley, who was Godfrey and Dad's army. <laughs> Both being dead yet speak. <laughs> w. Vine was born in Blandford and he had five children. He was also an elder at Manvers Hall in Bath. So here's a man, he's got a wife, he's got five children. How many people are in fellowship when he's there? 250 people. He works for Echoes of Service, which is a full-time job. He then writes 19 books, 
26 pamphlets. He is co-author of four other books. He writes on a regular basis for half a dozen Christian magazines. And he personally, as the top man, is in contact with a thousand missionaries on the field. Writing to them, answering their questions, trying to encourage them. A remarkable man. And when you read his books, they're not lightweight. It's not kind of, uh, he wrote this on the train going back to Bath one night. It's serious stuff. And uh, you cannot dismiss W.E. Vine. But he wasn't perfect. W.E. Sangster said, every righteous man has a blind spot. And every one of us in this room, no matter how committed we are to the Lord, we all have a blind spot. That You may look at my blind spot and say, I don't know how Earnshaw can't see it. It sticks out. And I look at you and go, Lord, I don't get it. There's a massive blind spot in that person's life, and yet you bless them. What was his blind spot? At Christmas, uh, he, he looked to play on the piano, and his, his Christmas party piece, when folk came round from the assembly, was the Nigger Boys song. By which he played this tune on all the black notes of the piano. And, and you then think, Lord, I just don't understand this. This, this godly man who is sending people out into the world to reach people of all colours and all creeds, then at home does this. But you know, I was brought up with that in my assembly. I had people who were keen on missionary work, but were the strongest racists I've ever met in my life. That when you spoke to them personally, and I'm being very frank with you, they spoke about the niggers and wogs in Blackburn. But yet when it came to missionary work, they prayed like the Apostle Paul that God would save those in foreign fields. Totally in Congress. But there we are. I just give that for what it is, warts and all. Thirdly, they were big on mission because of their conferences. Uh, I was brought up in Lancashire, the famous Lancashire Missionary Conference every year, where missionaries who were home on furlough or who were in the area wheeled in and shared their stories, they were big occasions. And not just in Lancashire, but they were multiplied all around the country. And the biggest was the annual London Missionary Conference. It grew so large that they had to move their premises to Westminster Central Hall, which is massive. And they peaked in 1935. Imagine this. 4,000 people turned up to a missionary conference. Now, most churches have stopped doing mission weekends because they just don't work. And... uh, the last church I was in, we stopped doing mission weekends. We brought a well-known missionary back. If I mentioned his name, you go, oh yeah, great. He could hardly hold 25 on a Saturday evening and you're under the seat thinking, this is so embarrassing. And then, you know, we then brought another well-known missionary and, well, people are not going to turn out twice to hear a missionary. And so when you think of, you know, 1935, 4,000 people going down to London to find out what God is doing in the world, to take that back to their assemblies and to pray about it is, is mightily encouraging. They were big on conferences. Fourthly, they were big on their indirect influence. By 1900, right throughout the world, there were 17,000 Protestant missionaries. All those were not brethren. Please don't misunderstand me. But the brethren had a huge impact, not only from this country, but also from Australia, from New Zealand, from America, and from Canada. They put in quite a good, substantial amount of those missionaries. 
going around the world saying that the Lord Jesus is Saviour. When Hudson Taylor commenced the China Inland Mission, he, he pulled together seven men. Four of them were Plymouth Brethren. What I find interesting is that Benjamin Brumel, uh, he really plays this down. Whether, whether the Brethren got up his nose or not, I, I really don't know. But he really didn't like to talk about all this Brethren influence. But, but Hudson Taylor was mightily influenced by, by the Plymouth Brethren. And uh, really at the bottom of Hudson Taylor, I would say, was certainly Brethren in his principles and was greatly helped, and we'll come to this in a moment, by, Alexander, by uh, Anthony Norris Groves. A man called Alexander Duff was the first Church of Scotland missionary to go to India. Why did he go to India and why did he go onto the mission field? Because he read Anthony Norris Groves on World Mission. And he was inspired thinking, yeah, why are we always looking at Scotland, Scotland, Scotland? Let's get out to the world. And so he actually went out to, to India to evangelize. And by the way, Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee came to this country several times, and whenever he came, he came at the invitation of the Christian brethren. And uh, a most interesting character. People read Watchman Nee and go, I really love Watchman Nee. Do you know what Watchman Nee believed? Among other things, he believed there should only be one local church in an area. He said this idea of, you know, we have lots of different churches. He said, you've misunderstood, there's only one church. It's the Church of Christ. So he had the little flock movement. And, and that is a very relevant word in this day and age. When you're, you're sweating yourself to death trying to do a, a work for God and suddenly a church down the road thinks it's great to have a church plant in the next street. And Watchman Lee would go, excuse me, what are you propagating? Your denomination, your kingdom, or the kingdom of God? Where did he get that from? He got it from the brethren. That there's only one true church of Christ. And it's those who gather around the Lord's table, who break bread, and can say, this man died for me. Therefore, Lord, what do you want me to do? You preach that in uh, most church growth situations in this country, and you'll be crucified. How dare you criticize what we're doing? And I would say a lot of church planting is nothing but church planting. It is just pushing the name of a denomination forward. I saw a list quite recently of, of areas where there is no gospel witness in the country. One is quite near to where I'm pastoring. I'd like to know who wrote the list. You, you, come, you come and meet my people who be praying tonight. And who pray for evangelists on a regular basis. What do you mean? Ah, there's none of your brand. I get the message. But the only brand is the one flock of whom Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. Sorry, that wasn't in my notes. I was preaching, but I don't apologize. <laughs> Henry Salter. Again, he was uh, a Cambridge lawyer, a bright man, uh, a gifted uh, author. He came to Christ as a young man at his mother's grave. As his mother's coffin was going into the ground, he heard a voice say to him, and if that were you, where would you go? And there and then he cried out in his heart, Oh God, have mercy on this young man. And Henry Salter was converted. He then opened a tract shop in, in Plymouth to provide lots of simple tracts for ordinary people to come in and buy them that they may hand out to their friends or to their work colleagues or anyone who was interested in Christianity could come in and, and, and pick up one of these things. 
He was a very clever man, a very scholarly man, but he loved to be working with ordinary people, if you can put it like that. And he was greatly ostracized. Oh, you're with the brethren. Oh, those malcontents. He had, uh, he had four children. And uh, I read the most interesting biography of his daughter called Henrietta. Henrietta Salter. She never married. She opened homes in different parts of the country to, to help people in difficult situations. But she finished up in London running a home to help people getting ready to go on the mission field. And she ran it on the principles of faith, as did Hudson Taylor. Her biography is called A Woman Who Laughed. Uh, as an aside, she, uh, at the age of 27, had a ladies' Bible study on a Sunday afternoon that was attended by 170 women. Most of you cried out of the congregation that size, let alone a ladies' Bible class. And uh, having read the biography of uh, Henrietta Salto, I, uh, I then did some research, found out where she was buried, rang the cemetery, and these days cemeteries, they're onto this, will charge you £50 to find out where a grave is. I spoke to a delightful lady. She said, why are you interested in this person? And I explained all this stuff. She said, leave it with me. She then rang me back and she said, I can't believe it. I've just seen something I've never seen in all the years I've been in cemetery work. I said, what's that? She said, well, I found the grave of Henrietta Salto. But there's a pile of people in the grave with her. <laughs> and all the comments right at the end say, C-I-M, C-I-M. She said, what on earth is CIM? I said, it's China Inland Mission. She said, what on earth is that? I said, how long have you got? <laughs> if I could have pushed a truck down the phone, I would have done it. <laughs> so I tried my best verbally to explain, well, the China Inland Mission is all about reaching out with the good news of the Lord Jesus. Can you see how the brethren didn't just kind of keep it inward, but, but they pushed it out to other people. So here's a lady running a home in London, that people who felt called to the mission field could come, live with her, have interviews, and if suitable, go out onto the mission field. It's a very, very honest biography, very simple one to read. And then I mentioned yesterday Huntingdon Stone. He was the founder of Peak Freem Biscuits. He bought a home in Greenwich solely to house people who were training to go on the mission field. And while there, living in the house he bought, he paid for their training and their medical expenses. It is said at the end of his life, he paid out of his own pocket for 500 people to go on the mission field. You think of how much it costs to train one person to go on the mission field. 500. When he died... He left £250,000. He died in 1916, so he died 101 years ago. He left a quarter million. What would that be, a million pounds today, probably? He left a quarter million pound to echoes of service with this condition. This must be spent in the next ten years on facilitating the gospel going into the world. Wow. These men, you see, had a heart. Not kind of just, just, by the way, our assembly needs a new toilet. Or could you tarmac the, you know, the driver of the assembly? No, no. Let's get it out, telling people about Jesus. So they were great people at influencing others and getting the gospel out. There was a well-known uh, brethren evangelist in Lancashire called Fred Elliott. 
Fred died in 1961, so he died 55 years ago. Uh, and he felt called to go on the mission field, but, but he just didn't work out. And, and it was said to him, I don't think you're suitable for this, Fred. So he became a home evangelist. And uh, he didn't take that as a step down. He said, well, that's, Lord, that's fine, Lord, if that's what you want me to do. In his obituary, at the end of his life, it said that through the preaching of Fred Elliott in Lancashire, 30 people had come to faith in Christ and then gone on to the mission field. 30. Most of us would be quite happy if we put one on the mission field, or two, 30. And not, by the way, someone else's converts. You know, these were his own converts, who he had led to faith in Christ, and then they'd gone on to the mission field. They were great facilitators. And the fifth thing is this, and it's the final point, but it's the longest point, so don't get too excited with the word final. <laughs> I just want to run through, like a, you know, you go and you buy a, a new dining sort of table and the chairs are there, and you go through swatches. Yeah, we'll have that. We'll, no, I don't like We'll see how they go. I just want to take a few swatches, as it were, through a few samples, some you'll have heard of, some you won't have heard of. Of, of the kind of people this, this denomination raised up and then threw into the world and said, go and tell the world about Jesus. And then suddenly you realize at the end of this, in perhaps half an hour's time, wow, I didn't realize that they sent so many people under the mission field. And this is, and by the way, this is, this is not being, being, being clever. I could reproduce this three times over, if not more. So many people I've left out. Let's start, first of all, with the most obvious, J.N. Darby. He has been known as the high priest of, of brethrenism. He was a very complicated person. But you know, truth were known, all of us are complicated people. Don't believe me, you try being a pastor for 12 months. You, know, you get to the end of the year and you think, Lord, it's only the wife and myself. And after 18 months... <laughs> He went to Westminster School. He then went to Trinity College in, in, in Dublin. He became a lawyer, but he felt that it clashed with his Christian understanding, even though he wasn't fully saved. He then entered the Church of Ireland. He was fluent in French. He was fluent in German. And then he, he got involved in the Brethren movement, and his whole life was turned upside down. When J.N. Darby died in Bournemouth, and that's where he's buried, you see the picture of his grave there. He left behind in 1882 1,500 churches in Britain. That's no mean achievement. A man who, with all his maverick personality, in spite of all that, he, he was passionate about telling people of the Lord Jesus. His, his personal notes, by the way, he wrote personal notes on the Bible. One man has calculated, if we lifted all the notes he wrote on the Bible in the margins of his Bible and put them into books, we'd produce 40 books of his personal notes on Scripture. I told you, I handled his Greek New Testament. It was so finely written. Beautiful. Beautiful thoughts about the Lord Jesus Christ. On top of that, he wrote the synopsis of the books of the Bible. He travelled more widely than John Wesley. Went to Britain, obviously in Britain, North America, the West Indies, New Zealand, the continent. He went everywhere preaching the gospel. 
He, he went out to Europe for four years, didn't come back to this country, and for four years just, just went around living a very frugal life, just telling people about Jesus. But before he went, he spent a good number of years in Southern Ireland working among the Catholics. Not denouncing them, but leading them to the Lord Jesus. And how about this? He was a high Tory. His godfather was, was Nelson. But he made it a rule, whenever he was on the road, he would always stop with the poorest members of the assembly. He said, I just want to stop with ordinary people, because that is who the Lord has called me to reach out to. He wasn't a team player, but if truth or not, not too many of us are team players. It's very hard being a team player. And God uses mavericks, and there's nothing wrong in being a maverick. And so when he met D.L. Moody, he wasn't impressed with him. And when he met C.H. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon wasn't impressed with him. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon was quite rude about Darby's translation of the Bible, and I have it at home, and sometimes I use it. By the way, there's a picture on there of, of uh, Powers Court. That's what Lady Powers Court owned. He was courting her. Mega, mega rich. But he thought, if I marry this lady, I think it will clip my wings in sharing the gospel, so I'll turn my back on marriage. That is a massive place. So you have to understand, yeah, there were quirks to his personality, and yet God works through that. And he spent his life telling people about Jesus. And then there's dear Anthony Norris Groves, that gentle, gentle dentist from, from the Exeter Plymouth area. He was intelligent. He knew Hebrew, Greek, French, and Italian. He and his wife felt so convicted that they had so much money and people were dying without Christ, they covenanted to give 25% of their income to the Lord. And so every week, whatever he made on dentistry, 25%. And they divided it between going around the area, giving it to needy people, what we may call down and outs, but also then putting it into people who were evangelizing. I think he probably got the balance right. We need to do some practical social work, but also we need to do spiritual work. He then felt exercised to go to Baghdad. Nobody would support him. So he said, that's fine. God has called me. I will go. So he took his wife, and he took his two sons, and he took Francis Newman, the brother of Cardinal Newman, Sadly, Francis Newman lost his faith in the end. He finished up a total unbeliever. Totally disillusioned with Christianity. He had a very ex bad experience when he went out to Baghdad. But they'd only been out there a few months when an epidemic hit what we now call Iraq. And, and in, in one month wiped out 30,000 local residents. And here's this man there, you know. He could be making thousands back in Exeter. But he's there saying, Lord, you've put me here to witness to Muslims about Jesus. He was a pioneer. And I would say, along with William Carey, Anthony Norris Groves was, uh, was a, a, great, a great pioneer in world mission. He had a sister. His sister was called Mary. And Mary married George Muller. So all of a sudden you see, ah, there's a network here. 
Why was George Muller interested in world mission? He was. Well, he had it within his heart that his sister was on the mission field. And uh, when George, when uh, Anthony Norris Gerbs went to Baghdad, he said to George Muller, would you come with us? And just because the work had started to take off in Bristol, Muller said, I can't leave a good work. It's taking off. I think to myself, what would have happened if it had asked him a year before that? Who knows, it may never have taken place. He died in Bristol at 55. What was his final sentence? Precious Jesus. Precious Jesus. And then there's George Moore himself. What a lot of people don't realise is that George Muller was a card-carrying member of the Plymouth Brethren. Everyone talked, oh, George Muller, great man of faith. Great man of faith, yes. But he was a pioneer of, uh, of uh, caring for children, yes. Great support of mission, yes. But also, he was an elder in a Brethren Assembly called Bethesda in Bristol. I knew a lady whose parents sat around the Lord's table with George Muller. And uh, she had a letter from George Muller to her parents. And as she was getting to the end of her life, she was sorting through all her papers and all her rubbish and said, ah, we don't need this stuff anymore. So she threw it away. Maybe the Lord was taking it from my life because it would become... Imagine me, can you imagine me parading this this afternoon? You, you'd be reaching out to touch it. Just get it. <laughs> that the shadow may fall across across your Bible. Can I have a photocopy? Yes, at £10 a time. Yeah, she threw it away. I think I've told you before that two of my mother's aunties were brought up in mother homes. I meant to bring all the information. And uh, right at the very end of one of the documents, it says that while she was in the mother home in Bristol, she committed her life to the Lord Jesus. I remember standing there with my mother weeping, thinking, we never knew that. That as a young girl there in Bristol, she knelt by her bed and just committed her life to Christ. He, he was a missionary-minded man. He lived by faith. The assembly that he pastored in, in Bristol, I say pastored, looked after with quite a few others. While he was there, it put 63 missionaries onto the field. 63. I didn't just put them there, but it supported them. Now, I know that George Muller lived by faith. But I must tell you one thing as well. He did have a mail shot of 25,000 people. The general idea I had was that he was this man just in this little room, you know, up on Ashley Down in Bristol that no one ever heard of, and suddenly, miraculously, all this money just kept coming from nowhere. No, he had a mailing list of 25,000 people. So people knew exactly what he was. He never asked for money. But they knew exactly what was going on. And I think that perhaps gives a fairer balance of George Muller living by faith. Interesting man. He set up an organisation called SKI, which is still going today. Scriptural Knowledge Institution. And when he was there, it was paying for 500 missionaries to be kept on the field. He didn't ask, by the way, are they brethren? Are they one of us? It's, are they telling the world about Jesus? If they are, we will support them. And then at the age of 70, George Miller went on a world tour that lasted 15 years. Now, most people at 70 think of cruises, don't they? You know, and, and 
you know, 101 things to do in your bucket before you kick the bucket. <laughs> At 70, he said, Lord, what can I do with my life? And you know something? When people retire these days at 55 and 60, they could have another 30 years. 30 years of this garden center, Waitrose, that garden center, then it's Sainsbury's. That's how a lot of people live these days in the Christian church. It drives you mad as a pastor. He said at 70, Lloyd, what can I do with my life? God gave him over 15 years, and he went round the world. Listen to him writing in his diary. I have devoted the evening of my life to traveling from one town to another and from one land to another in order to preach the gospel in English, German, French, and to encourage the Christians to strengthen the faith of reawakened Christians and as far as possible to seek to promote in every other respect a truly Christian life. God honored him. He outlived both his wives. They had three children who all died in childhood. He had one daughter who died before him. He knew great pain. He knew great loss. He's then trying to run an orphanage with 10,000 children throughout his life. And then on top of that, fighting with J.N. Darby about church leadership. And yet he kept going and kept his head above water. What a man of God. And still he was concerned with world mission. Okay, you've heard of these people. I guess you haven't heard of the remaining ones I'm going to speak about. Frederick Biedecker. If you know anything about travel, you've heard of Biedecker travel guides. They're generally in yellow. That was a cousin of his. The Biedeckers were big travel writers. Frederick Biedecker was born in 1823. And he got married. And within three months of being married, his wife died. He was absolutely devastated. It threw him off course for ten years. For ten years, he just wandered the world, just trying to find, well, what's, what's life about? Obviously, there was money in the family. What's the meaning to life? You get married, your wife dies. Is there any purpose? He didn't go into gross sin, but he was just groping to find reality. While there, he met a man from England who said, if you're ever in England, why don't you drop in? So, towards the end of his time wandering around the world, he dropped into this country, met the man in Canterbury, who said, oh, by the way, I'm going down to, uh, to Western Supermare. Why don't you come and meet me? So he went down to Western Supermare. In the providence of God, Western Supermare had become a watering hole for the Plymouth Brethren. And I could take you to a cemetery in Western Supermare where if I clapped my hands and said, will all the believers with the Brethren persuasion please arise? <laughs> you'd be shocked at all these giants from the Brethren Church who would rise up. So it was a Brethren watering hole. Lord Cavan, again showing you the kind of people who mixed in these circles, Lord Cavan had a heart to reach the people of Western Supermare. So he asked Lord Radstock if he would come down to Western Supermare for eight months. Could you sustain an eight-month mission? We're not going to hire churches or church halls we're going to do it in people's homes. And so, through some strange circumstances, Frederick B. Decker was invited to go and hear Lord Radstock in somebody's home. He said, as long as I've got a chair by the door, who hasn't said that? That I can get out if I don't like this. Well, Radstock got up and preached, and he was gripped. B. Decker wrote, I went in a proud German infidel, 
and came out a humble, believing disciple of the Lord Jesus. Because he was German, just up the road was George Muller, who often came down to Weston to get some fresh air. He bumped into Muller. They formed a friendship. He renamed his house Wardeck. Not Wadeck, Wardeck, which means waiting corner. And he said, I want to use our house as a place where we wait on God to see what, what next. Ten years after his conversion, Lord Radstock said to uh, Frederick Biedecker, who had thrown his lot in with the brethren, he said, I'm going out to Russia. Would you like to come with me? And so Biedecker went out to Russia. It so happened, Lord Radstock had been severely wounded in the Crimean War. And uh, during that experience, he'd come to faith in Christ. So even a near-death experience saved him. So, so Lord Radstock goes back into what we call the Soviet Union. He takes Biedecker with him, and they walk straight into a revival. And if you've ever read the life story of Lord Radstock, you know what I'm talking about. If not, read it. He walked into a revival among the, the middle class of Russia. And counts and countesses were opening their homes to invite their friends to hear the gospel. And you know, you know how people from overseas are always an attraction. So, oh, we've got, we've got uh, a German here, we've got a, the quintessential Englishman, bring them in and let them talk about Jesus. And, and Biedecker and Radstock said, uh, we often spoke to a crowd of 700 people in people's homes, and they were getting saved. He went back home, and then he came back, and he said, I want to stay here for three years. And for three years, Frederick Biedecker spent his life just wandering Russia, telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. He traveled thousands of miles. He said on one of his trips, he distributed 15,000 Bibles. And his main priority was going into Russian prisons. And he said, at the end of my trip, I had spoken to 40,000 people in prison. And this is before the Trans-Siberian Railway. Tolstoy knew Bidecker. If you read Tolstoy's book, Resurrection, written in 1899, he refers to Bidecker. He met him ten years before in Moscow, and this is what Tolstoy wrote in his diary. I met a man called Frederick Bidecker today. He's a Calvinist who speaks with pathos and through tears, constantly citing Bible verses and saying that a life of good works was not sufficient. For the whole time, I was moved to tears. Wow. The providence of God is amazing as he brings a man from Germany to Cambridge to Western Supermare. He's now out in the Soviet Union. He then goes on from there and travels through many other places, China, Japan, Bohemia, Moravia, Hungary, Turkey, Armenia. If you read his life, he had a great love for Armenia. He also started the Siemens mission over in Germany. Have you heard of him? And yet he led thousands of Christ. He was a brethren missionary. And he didn't take a penny. We've all heard of David Livingston. Do you know who David Livingston's next door neighbor was? Frederick Arnott. So, who's Frederick Arnott? Well, he followed in Livingston's 
footsteps. Imagine when Livingston is your next door neighbour. And uh, Frederick Arnett was born in 1858, Livingston died in 1873. He heard all the stories of what Livingston had been doing out in Africa. And as a young boy, he said, I want to do that. So he got converted, not as a matter of fact thing, but God saved him. He joined the local Brethren Assembly. And at the age of 23, no missionary society, he went out to Africa to preach the gospel. How about this? He walked into an area of headhunters. No mobile phones. <laughs> he was arrested by the chief. And he was held there for quite some time. He said all around the chief's hut were stakes and poles with skills and people's heads on. And there was one that had been reserved for the first white man. And I was there. He prayed something like this. Help. <laughs> Amazingly, God got him out of that situation. But what is fascinating is this. He was never heard of for seven years. So here's this man at 22, 23. He goes out to Africa. He, he's under arrest. He's then freed. Most of us would say, forget this missionary like, I'm going back. He just carried on and on and on, following in the footsteps of, of David Livingston. When he re returned to this country, people were stunned. We thought you were dead. Dead. He then began to tell them all that God had been doing out in the area where he'd been working. The, Geo, not the Royal Geographical Society was so impressed by this that they asked him to, to give lectures on the Zambezi River and so on. And when you mention Frederick Arnott, people go, oh, great explorer like David Livingston. No, no. Frederick Arnott was a soul winner. Why was he out in Africa? To lead people to Jesus. Do you want to read his biography? There it is. The missionary who followed in the footsteps of Livingston. Oh, and I love this man for personal reasons. You'll enjoy this. Dan Crawford. One of the missionaries who followed Frederick Arnott out was Dan Crawford. When Arnott came back, by the way, he came back, he saw a girl he liked, he proposed, she said yes. So he married Harriet Fisher. She was some girl. Took her back out to Africa. And with them went Dan Crawford. How old was Dan Crawford? 18. Most folk these days would be on a church apprenticeship, putting out church chairs for house groups. <laughs> At 18, he's sent there on the mission field. And he begins to work in two established brethren mission stations, but finds them a bit restrictive. So he leaves and says, I'm going out on my own. These days, a Christian organization would, would wheel him back in and say, get home, you rebel, you insubordinate young man, how dare you do that? He's on his own. He spends the rest of his life in Africa. He has so much time on his hands, he teaches himself Greek and Hebrew. He, uh, he learns the local language, and then he translates the Bible into a language that has never been written. So he teaches them their language, he writes it down, and then he puts the Bible into it. He's that kind of man. He went native. If you think you've got missionary problems or evangelistic problems... The area that he worked in, the chief had 500 wives. <laughs> and there wasn't a hat in sight. <laughs> in fact, a lot of clothes weren't inside at all. 
but at least they wore a smile. And uh, he was so effective as a soul winner, he was known as Conga Vantu. He was called the gatherer of the people. If you want to read an interesting read, he, he's, he's written a book, I put it there on the, on the stall there, it's called Thinking Black. It's just been republished, where he describes, it's not an easy book to read, he describes his life on his own in Africa, working among these people, who he said made their own alcohol, which was potent. He said they were a debased, immoral, godless people, and I stuck there to tell them about Jesus, and I saw the spirit move. The king of Belgium, king of the Belgian Congo, king of the Congo came out, and the, and the king of Belgium met Dan Crawford, and he said for 45 minutes... I sat down with the king of Belgium and gave him the gospel. Dan Crawford. Let me tell you four things about him. Very moving things, I find. Twelve years ago, through a strange set of circumstances, I came across a man who I visited. He'd been very badly hurt by, by the church by evangelical Christians and when I heard his story I too would have been hurt but I went to visit him not knowing of that he told me why he didn't come to church anymore and how he and his wife had been terribly treated we got chatting and he said well where do you come from and I spoke about my roots he said to me you know my father worked with Dan Crawford I said really I said the Dan Crawford thinking black he said, yes. He said, he actually died in my father's arms. And he said, my father dug the grave for him. And he said, he, he put the cross there. And he said, I've got a photograph of his grave. He said, I'll hunt it out on, on your next visit. I'll show it you. But there never was another visit. So I never got it. But think, wow, this man's father worked with a man who led not just hundreds, but thousands of Africans to Christ in all the time he was out there in Africa. When he was in Africa, here's the second thing, he came across a Pentecostal missionary called Willie Burton. Has anyone heard of Willie Burton? If you want to read an excellent book, it's called Into Africa. It's the biographer of Willie Burton. Wow. I buried a couple in when I lived in Swindon, who knew Billy Burton well. He was a personal friend of theirs. And uh, where I now live in Preston, I, I go and visit a church member, and the house right across the road is where Willie Burton used to come when he was on furlough. I could tell you stories galore about Willie Burton. He was a man who had the anointing of God upon him. Very ordinary man, but the Spirit of God was upon him. And he met Dan Crawford. And Dan Crawford saw what, what God was doing through Willie Burton and said, God is working through me, but not like you. So Dan Crawford got on his knees. And to our understanding is that Willie Burton prayed for him that he may have a double portion of the Holy Spirit. And he began to move in what we may call, quote, unquote, the gifts of the Spirit. That did not go down well when people at home heard of what he was saying and what he was doing. Powerful man. Thirdly, he tells us how he came to Christ in a brethren assembly in Gurak on the Clyde. He said that the preacher drew a chalk line on the floor 
and said, if you want to decide for Christ, cross the line. If not, go home. And he wrote, at 20 minutes past 10, by grace, I cross that line. Isn't that beautiful? And here's something that I really love. If you have children or grandchildren, you'll have heard of Katie Morag's series of children's picture books. Katie Morag? Written by Mary Hedowick. That's his granddaughter. So when you see Katie Morag, you think of Dan Crawford, this ordinary brethren man coming from Scotland with an anointing God upon him, leading thousands of Africans to Christ. And again, who's heard of him? I could go on and on. Let me just give you one or two more and then... You have heard of the Rossetti family. Christina Rossetti and Dante Rossetti. Theodore Rossetti was uh, an Italian who had been forced to get out of Naples for political reasons, and so he came over here. When he came here, he bumped into his uncle, Gabriel Rossetti. Gabriel Rossetti was the father of Dante and Christina Rossetti. They were Catholic, they were very patriotic. The only way that Theodore Rossetti could make money was by teaching Italian. And he began to teach a young man Italian. And the young man said to him, and I think there was perhaps a motive in this, the young man said to him, for he was a brethren boy, he said, sir, do you mind if we use as our textbook the Bible? If I bring my Italian Bible along, will you teach me Italian through the scriptures? And yeah, it's fine, I'm a Catholic, no problem at all. He said, do you mind if we start with the book of Ephesians? Yeah, that's fine. Theodore Rossetti said, when I got to Ephesians 2 and verse 8, I realized that my Catholicism was not good enough. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Oh, it's glorious. He, while teaching this boy Italian, taught himself into the kingdom of God, and he got gloriously saved. He said to the young man after one language lecture, he said, where are you going tonight? He said, oh, I'm, 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 I'm going on to a meeting. Would you like to come? Okay. And so he went along. Where was it? It was Orchard Street Brethren Assembly in London, where he ran into Chapman, Radstock, George Miller, even got to know Alexander McLaren. So suddenly the gospel came into the Rossetti family. When things were safe, he went back to Italy, a tough Roman Catholic country, and there he became an evangelist going around Italy. And that was the day, by the way, just over, just literally a hundred years ago, you could be imprisoned in Italy for being an evangelical. He died aged 59 in the morning meeting. What a way to go. Can you think of a better way to go? He'd stood up. He'd been talking to the assembly about the wonders of being in heaven. And he sat down and was there. A man led to Christ by a boy seeking to learn Italian. Amazing stuff. Who then became a missionary. Let me just give you just a couple more and then I'll quit. Edward Sowley, S-A-L-W-E-Y, 
If you want to have a good read, you can get his book. It's on Google. Google it. You probably pick it up for two or three pounds at the most. It's called The Beloved Commander. Wow, I'd never heard of him. I came across him. I read him. What a life story. He rose through the ranks of the British Navy. And he was a personal friend of Robert Falcon Scott. That's how high he was in the British Navy. And just before Scott went down to the Antarctic on his final trip, he, he went to see Edward Sowley to talk about one or two practical things. Through a strange set of circumstances, i.e. attending a meeting, being given an F.B. Mayer tract, and then something supernatural, he became a Christian. He had in his house a shelf on which there were books and a Bible. And while he was standing in the room, the Bible fell off the shelf and he opened at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. <laughs> Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So having heard the gospel preached and read an F.B. Mayer chapter, that's interesting. So he opened it again and it came to Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So he closed it and opened it again. And got the book of maps. No, he didn't. <laughs> he got Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. He said, I knew I was saved. I knew I was justified and had peace with God. Also there was no condemnation and I was free. Now it was St. Patrick's Day. And when the Catholic priest heard of his testimony, he said, Are you drunk because it's St. Patrick, Patrick's Day? He said, No, I've just got saved. <laughs> so he went around all his family, this man high up in the British Navy, saying, I just got saved. Do you know what they did? He tells us, he said, They sent me to a brain doctor, <laughs> which in those days was a psychiatrist. He examined him and said he was normal. <laughs> now, I'm not sure there's many of us who have got that from a doctor, have we? <laughs> But the family were unhappy. They said, you're not normal, you're mad. So they sent him, they paid for him to go to a Harvey Street physician to give a further examination and opinion on his state of mind. This is what the Harvey Street surgeon wrote on his note. Sir, it seems you are a citizen of another country. Wow. Unbelievable. He felt God was calling him to be evangelist. He was radical, he was crazy to be honest, but hey. He used to go to services in Westminster Cathedral, and when there was a pause in the service, he would just recite scripture. And on one occasion, there was a big Roman Catholic ceremony, and he sat there, and he's halfway through just shouting out some scripture, when suddenly he felt fingers go into his mouth. He was dragged out and finished up in a police court for a week. Sir Henry Irving was the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch of that generation. And he was playing Thomas Beckett on a London stage. And you can check this out, you can Google it, see if it's true. He was on the stage and said, Into thy hands, O Lord, into thy hands. And the curtain closed and down he went. And that was the end of him. He died on the stage. It brought the nation to a standstill. So much so that his funeral service was held in, in Westminster Abbey. So the place was piped out with hundreds of people for this famous actor. The organ was quietly playing away. 
Nobody knows how, but Edward Salway got into the service. And so while everyone's waiting for the bishop to come out and start the service, he just said in a very, very loud voice, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. Well, when there's about 2,000 people, they think, where's this come from? <laughs> and, and, you know, are you going to start making a fuss going, he sat next to me? <laughs> Nobody said a word. But the London paper that evening said, during the warm-up for the funeral service, a voice was heard crying out, be not deceived, God. That's the kind of man he was. He felt exercised to leave this country and to go to France and to go to the trenches. And he spent his time during World War I in and out the trenches with permission leading men to Christ. Saying, are you ready to die? Do you have a faith? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? He spent the whole of his life then in France until he died. He tells us that during that time he was imprisoned how many times? 60 times. He said, I loved being in prison for Jesus. Because every time I had to tell a different set of officers what I was preaching. What an incredible man he was. During World War II, by the way, his, his daughter became a member of, of the French resistance. Now listen, I've been speaking for, what, an hour and a minute. I've got three or four more different characters to tell you. I could tell you about these all day. I think I'll leave it there. I just want you to understand that these were brethren people. And you know, we sometimes go, oh, these dusty, smelly, moldy, fuddy daddies. That's the general impression people have me speak about the brethren, who, you know, all that is is his, her, his line, her line, hemline. Okay? His line, her line, hemline. Okay? If you want an explanation on that, I'll explain later. No, these men had a heart for world mission. And if you put them all together, I've got people here like Jeffrey Tebel, Leonard Strong. I could talk about Christabel Pankhurst. You've all heard of Emmeline Pankhurst. Her daughter got saved. Her daughter tried to set fire to the Prime Minister's house. It was an offence. She had to flee the country. She knew that she'd be up for, for big charges. So she went to France. The French wouldn't give her back to the English. So she had to stay there until women's votes were given. And then when everything was sorted out, she came back. She, she was walking past a shop window one day and so a book announcing the second coming. She read it and got saved. Went to see F.B. Mayer, knocked on his door. He had the shock of his life. What, what are you doing here? She said, I've become a Christian. What do you think I should do? I think I should change my name because I'm ashamed of my name and all that I've done. No, said F.B. Mayer, keep your name and give it dignity. And so for the rest of her life, Christabel Pankhurst hat or no hat, went around telling people, are you ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now listen, I close. I was brought up with the brethren, and I always knew that when I told people I was a member of the Christian brethren, that their nose went up. 
as if oh, there's something on our shoe. <laughs> and I know how it goes in our country. You have the Anglican Church, and then it's the Catholic Church, and then it's the Nonconformist Church. This is when I was growing up, and then all the oddbods at the bottom, the Pentes, the Brethren. I tell you, I count it a privilege to call these people my brothers and sisters. And that I am part of this wonderful, wonderful family. And for every old stuffy brethren, I'll show you plenty of stuffy Baptists and stuffy Anglicans and stuffy FIECers. They're in every denomination. But friends, these people have turned out a crowd of people of whom the world is not worthy. Let's pray together.